Hi, this is Michael McDonald, and you are listening to Jazz Is Not What You Think. Well, Michael, thanks for uh, joining the show. It's great to have you, and uh, I've been a fan for a long time. Oh, thanks. And, uh, you know, before I get into the new album, I, I wanted to just jump right into Ferguson. Uh, you know, I heard you're from Ferguson. Instantly, I just did a podcast from a very talented young trumpeter from Ferguson named Keon Harold. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but, you know, what that reminded me of when I wanted, one of the first things I wanted to ask you was, you know, you, uh, you grew up in Ferguson. I guess that's where you cut your teeth on singing. I, I, I read somewhere that you used to sing with your dad. What was it like back then and how it got you into this business, singing with your dad, probably at bars before you were of age to actually attend? Yeah, I, well, you know, we like uh, lived down in the city at first and then uh, uh, moved out to uh, Ferguson in the 50s, late 50s, uh, or mid 50s, I guess. And, um, uh, you know, Ferguson was like uh, any, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh urban sprawl town of that era, you know, uh, it was changing quickly, you know, uh, it really wasn't nearly, uh, uh, as in, you know, uh, in some ways, uh, economically viable a place as it is today. You know, I mean, uh-huh. uh, back then, you know, the downtown was kind of in a, a state of, uh, demise, like post-war, you know, where a lot of these small towns, uh, things were changing so rapidly there was malls and, uh, you know, suburban infrastructure being built. So the, the center of towns like Ferguson started to kind of wane, if you will, you know, economically. A lot of the mom and pop stores were closing and uh, there wasn't, you know, uh, much left on there but the dentist and the post office and yeah. places like that. And today, you know, of course, uh, a lot of the people that I grew up with, the generation I grew up with, have microbreweries and restaurants yeah. and Sure. wine tasting places all down in the areas where we all grew up as kids and it's uh it's great to see you know and, and it's a sure. much more diverse community today uh uh you know and and you know there's uh like the the problems of growth that that happen everywhere you know the ferguson is uh pretty much an example of that uh, i think it, it got probably its share uh, more than a share of bad press uh, sure Michael Brown uh, incident, um, yeah. but I think uh, you know, you know, prior to that, and and, and in spite of that, even uh, Ferguson is a a good example of you know people uh, living uh, in, in in a more diverse environment. You know, uh, prior to years ago, uh, Ferguson was touted in in some publications as uh, a, uh, an ideal example of uh, you know. Uh, Areas like itself, you know, becoming more diverse and and people, you know, get, uh, you know, finding ways to expand economically, uh, and you know, the kind of mixing of different cultures that had been pretty much uh, separated, you know, in the in our country in the fifties, uh, it was it was apartheid. It was you know, uh, yeah, yeah, it, you know, and especially in a town like Ferguson, you know, uh, so you know, it's it's really. Uh, we're we're growing as a society. Hopefully, uh, we'll get through the painful parts uh, and and be better for it. You know, um, that's that's all. That's the best we can hope for. What we really got to be careful of is that we don't uh, give in to the 
the toxic fear that sometimes it engenders, you know, uh, when people, you know, are, you know, are forced to face reality of a situation and, and change for the better. Uh, not everybody gets on board with that. And, and, uh, until, you know, everybody kind of realizes that there was nothing to be afraid of, that it's really, a, 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 you know, uh, just going down a better path of, sure. of, of learning to live together and get along with each other. Uh, you know, it's it's you know it's such a big question and such a, a gigantic uh, transition for us. Uh, seemingly in this country, it doesn't come easy. And uh, where you know, there's so many places in the world where it, it, it's what people look at as as something to be grateful for. You know, I when I, I went out to California, uh, and I'm back. I live in California again. One of the things I love the most about here is the uh, the diversity and the the, the different cultures, you know, that make it such a rich uh, environment to live in. And, and uh, you know, you, uh, uh, you, you know, so, you know, I've grown up in the Midwest. It was like, you know, Dairy Queen was, you know, <laughs> got it, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's not much, you know, it, it's to me, I love going back to and seeing, you know, the, the, the fact that it's kind of expanded as a community and, and grown culturally that way, you know. Wow. Well said. Well, you know, a uh, good transition of well said, you know, you're you have a penchant for really clever lyrics. And, you know, when I was younger and I remember when your first solo album came out in vinyl, <laughs> I bought it. And, you know, it seemed that the clever lyrics were coming from sort of a cerebral, your, the brain. And what I'm noticing and maybe we we'll, can transition into the new album is that it seems like now your lyrics are coming from the heart. Yeah, I, I, I've been, I've always wished I could do that more. You know, um, I, you know, I never really considered myself much of a lyricist, and uh, I was always kind of approached it more from the, you know, musical standpoint. And and I was never even that serious about the music part of it. You know, I, I, I grew up playing in bars, and uh, you know, the music I. Uh, played most of my life was just dance music that you know uh you know we were kind of that that part of the uh, evening that you know facilitated people to, to enjoy themselves and get up and dance and uh, you know i never looked at my musicality much beyond that you know i never thought i was gonna you know uh leave the world with any great legacy you know i just wanted to uh i wanted to be that guy that you know if people if i ever got the opportunity uh driving down the freeway might hear their record and reach over and crank it up, you know, and, and, <laughs> and you know, and that, and that was about the extent of my fantasy, you know, uh, and or being able to, to per perform in the studio or play with, uh, guys that I had a lot of admiration for, you know, uh, but as a lyricist, you know, that's where I really always kind of fell. I felt that I fell short. I always admired guys like Don Henley and uh, James Taylor or people, who seemed to have that gift of uh, Jackson Brown, you know, that had that gift of telling a story that had some depth, you know, a lot of the country writers, you know, that, that wrote such great lyrics, you know, uh, uh, I was always trying to just kind of piece together an idea enough to make it fit the music, you know? Uh, yeah. And, and so and, this album, I, I wanted to kind of somehow find a, a, a spot to come from that was a little different, you know, than, than what I've been doing over the years. You know? Well, it worked, although I, I must argue with you, you're selling yourself too short. I mean, there are songs like Taking It to the Street, What a Fool Believes, You're Made That Way, 
that I know the lyrics actually meant a lot to a lot of people because they're, they made you think. Yeah, I, I think they did. You know, I mean, uh, for me, it, that was one of the few songs I think that really actually came from my own experience. Uh, you know, taking to the streets was, you know, growing up in Ferguson during the 50s and the early 60s and, and just always feeling that kind of tinderbox of social uh, inequity, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that uh, that seemed to just be so hyper prevalent all the time, you know, growing up in, as a kid in St. Louis. Uh, you know, I, I think children uh, have a better idea of what's unfair about society sometimes than adults do. Adults mm. kind of tend to move into these areas where they accept things as they are and, and try to work within the framework of whatever they're dealt. Uh, and that's called somehow maturing or something. But, <laughs> you know, I remember as a kid thinking, you know, uh, uh, you know, this, this is, you know, this is kind of uh, frightening to think that, you know, that, that you just because you're born a certain color that your life would be a totally different experience and that you would be, for the most part, locked out of the mainstream of things that uh, you wouldn't know the same people you know. You wouldn't uh, be able to walk in the same uh, establishments that you walk in. And, you know, it, you just kind of think, why isn't somebody doing something about this? You know, and uh, and then you know, uh, you you, you kind of go about the business of growing up and 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 having to accept that uh, things are just unfair. You know, and uh, and and I think uh, that's the greatest. Uh, journey we have as, as a humanity is to not accept those things and to mm-hmm. not, you know, like this whole thing of make America great again. I know it's bullshit, you know, <laughs> it's like, the, you know, going back to what, you know, to the dark right. ages, it's like, you know, uh, you know, there's probably some idiot out there that would argue that uh, the feudal period was a great time to be alive, you know, right. you know, it, it's like, you know, the trickle down economics bullshit. It's like, you know, the only thing that ever produced was slavery and and uh, you know uh, uh you know the indentured servitude you know i mean it, it never it never produced anything good you know historically so why all of a sudden is it becoming this good idea again you know it's like we have to be uh, a, a society that seeks to uh operate on a level where we ca- take care of each other you know and yeah there's going to be pitfalls but you know uh to you know to kind of turn back the hands of time and fall asleep at the wheel after so many people have sacrificed so much to get us where we are today uh, would be, uh, you know, such a, a disaster and, and such a, uh, uh, you know, a crime really, you know, yeah. uh, against humanity that we'd be per- perpetrating on ourselves, you know? Yeah. So, so let me ask you as it relates to music. So maybe when you're sometimes tagged as blue eyed soul, Maybe that feels a little bit uncomfortable. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I guess I, I, you know, I, I don't really think about it too much. I, uh, I you know, um, I, I, you know, I, it's kind of like, uh, you know, there's so many kind of uh, efforts to categorize everything these days. Sure, you know, sure, we sure. want to we want to have a name for everything, you know, um, and. Uh, I think I just think that's part of what what what, what the, the times we live in. You know, it's like uh, half the stuff that they have in, on, on a psychological profile of you know kids growing up. You know, uh, they have a name for it now. Uh, thankfully, they didn't have a name for it when I was growing up because right. I was, 
been on six or seven different medications. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's so, uh, you know, it, but nowadays it seems like, you know, there's a, you know, like, look at Yacht Rock. Well, yeah, speaking of labels, uh, you know, one of the things that I, you know, got me into your music, you know, back in the early days of Doobies and Steely Dan was the fact that it, it as I guess it's, "Quote unquote," defied categorization. I, I remember reading reviews in Rolling Stone where, when you got too jazzy, they said, "Oh, it's too jazz," and then the jazz w consumer might listen to it and say, "Well, it's kind of a little pop or rock for me." And the fact that you kind of navigated in and out of different genres kind of kept you in a category by yourself. Um. Well, thanks for saying that. I. I. You know. I. I, yeah, I I don't really uh, like I said I don't I don't uh, think too much about that uh, other than uh, um, I I will admit to the fact that I always when I wrote a song I, I think I am a kind of a pop songwriter at heart because I always think about that you know uh, you know the idea that it might get on the radio <laughs> you know, yeah, that was always yeah. you know that was always what I was <laughs> shooting for you know sure uh, you know uh, I, I probably should be ashamed to admit that but I. I uh, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, but, you know, as far as the other categories, uh, I always kind of marveled when guys that I know who are, or, or I have a great respect for as jazz players would comment favorably about the music we did. And, uh, you know, that would kind of baffle me in a way because I didn't really think that we were really knocking on any door, you know, in, in terms of uh, being very progressive in that area, you know, uh, but uh Appreciated the fact that they, they they seemed to like the stuff we did, you know, and, and and you know, as far as other jazz musicians or you know other musicians who were more in the jazz world, um, and then you know the, some of the young bands uh, that seemed to be uh, you know uh, fans of music that that we did in the seventies, uh, I, I I find that really gratifying, and and uh, and I've, I've had the the uh, distinct pleasure of playing with a couple guys, you know, uh, Steve Bruner. Cat and uh, sure, sure. Uh, you know, uh, uh, become friends with uh, some some of the younger bands that, uh, you know. I, and again, you know, I I think it's if you just stick around long enough, uh, somehow, uh, you know, you, you you kind of experience all of it. I know in the '80s it was like, uh, you know, it, I felt like one of the Walking Dead or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're. You're very humble, you're, but you're a household name. And, and you know, even the subject of spoofs from Jimmy Fallon to Family Guy to 30 Rock, 40-year-old version. Um, but it it's, comes from a world who loves and appreciates what you've done. And for me, you know, when I look back, even I think it was your first solo album, if that's what it takes, um, you had some of my jazz heroes on there. I mean, Steve Gadd and Robin Ford and Paulina DaCosta and you know, Michael Armardian and Boddicker and Tom Scott, you seem to gravitate to that. I don't know whether it's intentionally or you just know that these guys will know what to do when they get in the studio. Well, that is pretty much it. I mean, I came out to California during the period of time when those guys were coming up uh, in the studios. You know, like Michael Martin was like the new guy in town playing on a lot of dates, you know, mm -hmm. uh, when prior to him was probably Mike Melvoin and, and, uh, um, uh, you know, other other keyboard players of, of that era, uh, Victor Feldman and people like sure, that that sure, were sure. playing on, uh, you know, everything from mu movie dates to pop music dates to, you know, um, 
So that was kind of what I uh, was used to in my experience of coming out to California and playing sessions when I could get them. And, and, and as a uh, artist on RCA, and, uh, God forbid, you know, some of the records I made back then, but, uh, but I, I was immediately introduced to these guys. And, uh, so those were the go-to guys for me, you know, whenever I could get in the studio again, you know, and whenever the opportunity arose again, I, uh, uh, you know, those were the, I knew those were the guys who, who had that expertise and that, that, uh, you know, amazing talent. Yeah. To uh, to really do something very special in, in a moment in, in the recording environment, which can be pretty antiseptic at times, you know. <laughs> so so when I look back at the credits uh, to your first solo album, Willie Weeks, he's also on the new album. Yes, and and so that, that's a that's a long uh, musical relationship there. <laughs> well, yeah, I do, and and Willie was a Doobie brother, you know. Was a yeah, yeah. I remember, uh, he was with the Doobies for for. More, couple of years and uh we toured together you know with the doobies and uh uh you know my I, my first recollection of hearing uh willie was on the donny hathaway li live record you know yeah and um and i think you know everyone most of the people that i know who are fans of willie's that's that's a kind of a hallmark record that everybody remembers you know uh, first hearing him play you know yeah and then he was with george harrison i think for a while yeah, and uh, has played with Eric Clapton yeah. for quite a few years, and and you know, um, just just a, a great player. You know, he's just such a solid uh, player with that 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 certain expertise that pertains to bass guitar and and specifically electric bass guitar, and uh, that you know that everybody who really takes on an instrument, um, whether it be a guitar player, bass player, there's that uh, there's that whole other aspect of that particular instrument and having those sensibilities that you develop that make you great besides just being able to play well, you know, that you really understand what your function as a bass player is, you know, and, sure. uh, uh, you know, he always had that great tone and, and, uh, and, and that, that way of, uh, you know, working, at, you know, uh, in, in that frequency level on a track that just brought so much to the, arrangement to the song you know absolutely so so my i also couldn't help but notice my old friend on your new record branford marsalis uh and, and you you let him stretch out too yeah well t literally that was the first take Brant wow Brantford, he just kind of you know looked at the chart it was just a chord chart we really didn't have you know have anything for him to play other than we wanted him to kind of solo in here in and out of the track and so he just played down with the track and we kept every bit of it, you know, because that, that first take was just, you know, uh, spontaneous genius. And, and uh, there was no need to try it again, you know. In fact, I think at the end of the track, he, <laughs> he said, you know, he kind of started a second take and he goes, you know, I think pretty much said it all in that first one. And we, we agreed, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and every time I listen to it, I, I still go back to that moment and I marvel at how, just without really hardly knowing the song, uh, he was able to to become such a, a, a dominant uh, element of that track and, and uh, really kind of uh, overall defined the whole feel of the thing, you know. It kind of reminded me of uh, Wayne Shorter on the title track of Asia. Yeah, it, 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 now that you mention it, I, I, it, it does me too. You know, it really makes me, uh, makes me realize that I, I can't even remember that track without him on it, you know. <laughs> Well, the uh, 
the new album, uh, Hail Mary, opening track, uh, Hammond B3 and jazz guitar, and of course your wife singing as well. Um, how'd that all come together? That's a, that's a, that's a great, great intro to this new record. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, that, that was the last, one of the last things we cut. Uh, wow. Fact, the slow blues uh, uh-huh. was the last thing we cut, and uh, that was the second to last. And that was a song I wrote most recently, you know. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, it, it's, uh, it was just kind of a, 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 a feel and, and uh, kind of metaphoric lyrically, you know, uh, although it, it's kind of set in the scenario of a man and woman, you know, uh, uh, it, it really, I think, uh, on a broader sense, is uh, uh, something I can really relate to from just a, a being this age standpoint. You know, uh, you, you, you know, for me, what the song was kind of about, uh, uh, taking it out of the, the, the romantic scenario, is, uh, you know, I don't think any of us expected to or knew what we would be like at this age. I know I remember <laughs> thinking when I was in my 30s that when I'm in my 60s, I'll probably be falling asleep in front of a television somewhere, you know, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it just, that's just not, uh, what happened. And, and you all of a sudden realize that, uh, you still kind of want to run it into the end zone once or twice in your life before you, you know, and, uh, you want to just kind of keep doing the things that you have a passion for. And, uh, uh I think that's, uh, you know, in, in some ways, uh, it, that's been, uh, um, a hallmark of a lot of people in in this generation you know uh generations past but i think our generation it's a little more prevalent you know i think that that uh, our generation we we have a lot of people in their 60s who uh aren't really ready to retire necessarily you know, sure or, or, or or go out to pasture and uh in in our parents generation it was like you know, by the time you got in your 60s you know you, you know uh you had to start thinking about settling down and settling into you know uh your senior years, you know, and yeah, uh, it's a it's a little different uh, society that that kind of has produced uh, this baby boomer generation that uh, uh, you know, like I say, still wants to uh, uh, take a stab at at, at life on on uh, levels that uh, we kind of sometimes thought we would have kind of given up on at this point and. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of what the song's about, is just kind of the, the, almost being surprised at, at, at this point in my life that I kind of want to, uh, I want to still get out among them, and, and I want to uh, say something that, that might be important to someone, you know. Yeah, and, and, and you know, what I got out of it is uh, I detect a, a more spiritual Michael McDonald. Oh, it's, uh, that's interesting. Um uh, I think it certainly is a more personal, you know, like a more uh, gut level Michael McDonald for sure. You know? Yeah. So I, I just wanted to talk about success. I mean, I I was you were a big star before uh, the Sweet Freedom track became a just a huge hit, um, and I remember like the day it, it I heard it for the first time and. It sort of launched you in a in a little bit different direction. I mean, it was certainly a classic Rod Temperton track, and but you know, I, I sort of saw Michael McDonald in in the Quincy Jones, George Benson, Michael Jackson kind of ultra pop, and yet it was still as good as it gets. Well, was I, that, what was I, I would have to credit Quincy with 
with that and Rod Tempering. You know, yeah. that was really basically, you know, kind of their musical machine and, and just applying my voice to it, you know, uh, which I was, you know, thrilled to do, you know. Um, uh, I, I see, I, I've always been of the belief that as an artist, you know, where radio is concerned, uh, especially uh, if you're lucky enough to get on a radio at all, you know, uh, is. Uh, I, I really believe I give people credit for they want to hear a familiar voice doing something different. They don't want to really hear you keep doing the same thing over and over again. You know? Absolutely. And uh, and I think a lot of record companies uh, and or, you know, people in management and stuff, they 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 it strikes fear in their heart when an artist decides that they want to kind of put a different uh, uh, atmosphere around what they do you know uh, it's like oh sure. god don't, you know for me it was always fighting the battle of well could you do another on my own you know, or, right. you know and it was funny because you know a lot of times you, you would come up with those tracks initially and uh those very same people would go ah, i don't know this doesn't sound like you know, and then if you were lucky enough to catch a hit with it then it, then you had the next five years it would be like well can't you just do another one of those you know, and, <laughs> You know, and so you know, you're always kind of in that weird conversation that uh, you have to remember that this conversation isn't really based in reality, and uh, it, the responsibility still falls on me to kind of try to relate to my audience from a personal standpoint, and not try to engineer my career around what other people think I should be doing. You know, and, yeah. and that's a, that's a uh, I, it's a I found that it's a difficult, a more tricky spot to be in than you than you would think, you know, uh, because a lot of times you don't really trust your own judgment when you're the only person who wants to do something. Even with this record, you know, I, I walked around with this record and I've heard other artists talk about, about this very same scenario. Uh, but I walked around with this record for years, you know, playing it for people, you know, in, in, uh, people in my own camp. And it was like, yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> okay. You know, uh, not that it's any great shakes or that it'll ultimately be even very successful, but uh, it is the record I needed to make. And now, you know, uh, a lot of those people are going, well, yeah, no, this is great. You know, uh, it's, it's a great record. But, you know, really leading up to getting it released, it was kind of met with a certain tepid kind of uh, uh, response. And, you know, I remember Boz talking about it filter grease you know and and he was pretty much out there self-promoting these tracks that he had cut <laughs> and uh you know playing them for people and it was like uh, yeah you know uh, but aren't, aren't you gonna do another blues album you know and then you know i mean it was like uh, yeah, i think every artist has to fight that battle at some point in their career you know well you know you mentioned quincy jones uh, as being uh just formidable on that track and you know, you you know the story. I don't know if our, our listeners know that. You know, when when Michael Jackson decided that he wanted Quincy Jones to produce his record, they were like, "Oh, he's a jazz guy. What what are you doing?" And yeah. uh, the rest is history. No, right. And and you know the thing I always loved about Quincy and you know th those guys were just they just got after it. You know, it was like the minute you got in the studio, it was like let's start recording. You know, there was none of this. Let's hit the snare drum for two hours. You know? Right. And get the ultimate snare sound. <laughs> it was always just like you know, you know, we hired a guy who who knows how to make his drums sound good. <laughs> All <laughs> was put the right mics up, you know, and we start playing. You know, it was it was none of that. You know, like we we suffered so much from that in the '80s. You know, like you know, some uh, some guy from the cartridge company banging on a snare, you know, 
for two hours to, you know, and by the time you got the snare sound, you wore the head out, you know, so it was like, <laughs> there's all this crazy, you know, uh, uh, gyrations and, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, sonic acrobatics that we used to do to try to make the ultimate sounding record. And, and Quincy, you know, his production thing was never like that. It was like, we're in a great studio. We got the best guys we can get. Uh, everybody knows how to make their instrument sound good. You know, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, Bruce Swedeen, you know, would come out with yeah. a microphone, not six or seven microphones. And he'd go, yeah, I think this one's going to sound good on you. And he put it up and it sounded great. <laughs> <laughs> He's always just cut to the chase and, and get about the business of making music. And I, I always really loved working with those guys for that reason. You know? Absolutely. You know, one of the other things I wanted to ask you, uh, Michael, is that I, I remember back around 2000, you started a record label with uh, Jeff Bridges. Um, yes. I, is that still around? Uh, you know, we just put it, uh, I think we put it to bed finally. You know, uh, he and I had done a records, both done records on it, on that label. And uh, I talked about doing another record. In fact, I was talking with Jeff about, uh, you know, uh, doing another project. Uh, but we never got around to it, and, and it got to be where everybody just got so busy that you know, running a record company was not really in the in the cards for any of us, you know. Uh, although we had a lot of fun and, and yeah. doing it, and, and we made a couple projects uh, that we were both. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, his album. Uh, I, I co-produced it with Chris Paul, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and we played on it, and, and we and it was just fun, great fun. We did it at Jeff's house in uh, his studio, and. Uh, for the most part and uh a little bit in my studio uh and it it was uh you know it, it really a, a lot of fun experience and it was a very unique musical experience for me because uh it was the first record jeff had done i think in a long time and uh, mm -hmm. uh so it, it was very experimental for him you know he's he's kind of a renaissance guy he's a sure. an actor he's an artist uh you know uh and, and a musician and so you know any one of those realms he's he has a certain uh, uh unique artistry that he brings to it you know and uh being part of his musical thing was a lot of fun for me yeah uh, that's great and then i guess finally i wanted to ask you you know steely dan and the doobie brothers um they were the bridge for a lot of people to start listening to some some jazz players if you would yeah um uh, in fact i, I kind of credit you, know, you and donald and others involved back then almost in launching a contemporary jazz scene where a lot of the session players from there springboard into solo careers. And, you know, whether it was Larry Carlton or Tom Scott or, you know, Joe Sample, you name it, they, they, it was sort of almost as if there was the, this camp where they were all playing on these records and they developed the desire, the chops in many ways to become solo artists. And, We've kind of lost that because I think what happened in those days because of the way that those artists played on so many dates, working with so many great artists and understanding how to make a compose and to make a, a song and to make a great record, that sort of got lost and it turned into smooth jazz where it was just taking a very, very small part of what those artists were doing back in the you know, 70s, 80s. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I, 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 you make a good point about the, the, the platform being set up, you know, by, by groups like Steely Dan. And and, uh, um, and, and I think, again, you, know, you got to give the audience credit. I think America was ready 
to, you know, I mean, America's always ready for something uh, more sophisticated than I think the medium wants to trust it with, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and uh, the, uh, you know, the standard of musicianship, like back in the 30s and 40s, and and, and, and your point's well made about uh, those guys, you know, because like I said earlier when we were talking, uh, the reason I hired those guys for my days, but they were just, they were the session players that I knew when I moved to California, you know, uh, and uh, started making records out here. Those were the guys that worked in the studio. And I think uh, because they were kind of showcased as soloists on records like the Steely Dan albums, and I think Don LaWalter, you know, really did much to, in their appreciation of these guys' ability uh, and you know, give them the music that they could really, into the pop world, uh, project what their abilities really were. They weren't just playing, you know, uh, on a pop record, you know, kind of at at about half the the level of what they can actually, were capable of. You know, the the Mm -hmm. music kind of was set up to where uh, they could, uh, you know, play more sophisticated and improvisational parts that that really kind of put them out there. And Joni Mitchell did a lot too for oh, yeah. uh, for those guys. You know, when she started to ex- be more experimental with her music, it really brought the whole level of everybody's, all the musicianship in the studio up to a place where you started to actually appreciate what these guys were capable of, you know. Sure. And so you had Tom Scott and the LA Express, Robin Ford, uh, Hal Blaine, who would probably... Uh, I mean, excuse me, John Garen, who had probably yeah. played on a million pop records, and you might not have ever really, you know, uh, most people would have never really thought of John Garen, but then all of a sudden John Garen was the driving force in L.A. Express mm-hmm. uh, because of records that he played on, like Joni Mitchell's record, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and like with Tom, you know, playing on the Steely Dan stuff. And, uh, the, those those were great uh platforms for uh, kind of shining a light on on the guys who were basically the the workforce in the uh, recording scene in LA you know yeah well you I, I I remember you saying on a couple of contemporary jazz records I remember Bob James Bob. for foreplay you did one in uh, a couple of years back and then like back in the 80s there was a, a very talented electronic keyboardist T Lavitz I think you and Amy were on that record yeah, he was with. Uh, oh, uh, well, he played with Little Feet a little bit, I think, and uh, Paul Ber- Paul Barrer. Uh, but um, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm sorry, man, I'm forgetting. And, and it, it, the, the uh, guitarist that was an instrumental, Dixie Dregs. Oh, he, Steve Morris. When, yeah, when I met him, he was the keyboardist with the Dixie Dregs, and yeah. I think he played with Ambrosia for a while too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he was just amazingly talented. You know, guy, producer, uh, as a producer, as a uh, composer, as an instrumentalist. And uh, it was always a lot of fun to work with him in the studio because he was just a ball of energy and, and, and creativity. You know, he really uh, uh, made some great records. I, I, you know, and I don't know how commercially, how much they, they came to fruition commercially for him, but they were great records, you know. Yeah, I think it, he had a couple of commercially successful albums back in the 80s. I haven't talked to T in years. Are there any jazz artists that uh, that you'd like to work with, uh, maybe do something with, uh, like you did with Foreplay, or just to add your signature? Um, 
Well, yeah, I'm sure there are, you know, uh, uh, you know, any number of guys that I, I, I would, you know, there's so many people I would love to, to collaborate with. I, I always enjoy doing that, you know. Um, yeah. Um, off the top of my head, I, I don't know which, which one I would pick over which one, you know, but uh, uh, anytime that opportunity arises, I, I usually try to, uh, you know, find a way to, to do it, you know. Yeah. And I think most musicians have that same frame of mind. It's like, you know, uh, a new situation to, to kind of express music in, in, uh, to either a new audience or a new, uh, in a new environment is always, that's kind of what keeps us all going, I think, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Michael, it was absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. Uh, love the new record. Really, really enjoy it. And it's uh, it, it was great to great to hear a new Michael McDonald record with Michael McDonald songs. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. I I, I hear it's you know when you when you refer to yourself in the third person, it's, it's a sign of insanity. So <laughs> I guess I'm going a little crazy. But uh, I, I sure appreciate your time, man, and uh, and wish you guys the best. And uh, 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 always, uh, you know, I appreciate the encouragement, you know, and the support of you guys. Yeah,